0: Great to see If you've got a Bible, can you go to Mark chapter 3, please? We will get there momentarily. Mark chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but I love this time of year. Um, we were out yesterday with the family at a national trust, and it was 19 degrees, which was one warm. But it was just lovely being outside in the autumn. I love that. I love this time of year. But what I particularly love about this season, this time of year, is... Um, it's American football season. And if you know anything about me, you'll know I'm a huge fan of American football. I used to play. When I was young, I played two-touch. I played full contact. I've been a fan for decades. But you may know that about me. But my, what you may not know about is that I take it to a whole new level. Is that I have been a member of a fantasy football league, an NFL fantasy football league, for 20 years now with the same group of guys. We, have, uh, we meet several times a year. We meet at the beginning of September for the draft where we pick our players. We meet uh, in February for the Super Bowl and then at some other point during the year we meet at an American diner on theme um, just to have a catch up and have our committee meeting. We have a commissioner, we have a conciliary, we have three vice presidents. I am one of the vice presidents. I know because I have a plaque that says I am the vice president. So when we go and have our meeting we have the vice president and we have good times and fun. Even yesterday I was on the phone to the commissioner, he's he's a friend called Keith, but he's the commissioner, just chatting about players and had to make some swaps and and bits and pieces. But it was great fun, it's something I do, but it's very much a niche thing. Following a football was a bit of a niche sport in the UK, particularly being part of a fantasy league as long as I have, is a niche sport. But I'm on the inside. I know what's happening, I know what's going on. And what we're going to be looking today in the next section in our Gospel of Mark is what it means to be on the inside and the outside of God's kingdom. Because if you're going to be on the inside of God's kingdom, there are some important things that you need to know. So let's go to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter, no, sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to read the passage together. And I'm going to need some help for this. We've got a few slides to get through. I'm going to read the first one, and then... Oh, that's one of my fancy players. He needs to do well, Monday night. So root for him. His name's Joe. Um, but anyway, so next thing, we're going to read the passage. I will read the first page, and I need some volunteers to read the next one. Jeremy has the mic. Can you just have some hands up? Who would like to help us? Jeremy would like to help us. Dave would like to help us. There's one at the back over there. Whoa. All right, then. You're going to have to run right. I'll read the first one. Please follow along. Read what it says on the screen, not what's in your Bible, so we're all reading from the same translation. But it says this, verse 13, He said, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the and Nineteen and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, "He is out of his mind." And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, "He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons." And he called, he called them to him, and said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, thank you everyone. Can you give those guys a hand? That's not easy, reading that. Especially, especially when you have Simon the Canaanian and Thaddeus in there and a few other strange names that we're not familiar with. All right, big idea today. The big idea of what we can look at is those who are in the kingdom are those who spend time with Jesus And do his will. Those who spend time with Jesus. So we're going to look at this theme of insiders and outsiders, which is something that runs through Mark's gospel, but is particularly explicit here. And we've got two things. We look at Jesus' new community. First of all, then we're going to look at the question of who is in control. So Jesus' new community, this first section, famous. um, If you're familiar with any parts of God's word, and is the calling of the 12 disciples. And the theme of following Jesus is one of the key ones that runs throughout The Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus call the fishermen uh, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. We've seen him call Levi, the tax collector, particularly to follow him. But there were others who came and followed him. We see them in other gospels; those who are named uh, in the books of Acts. So there was a group of followers. But Jesus then now calls twelve men to form his kind of his inner core. Of what he is doing in the world and it begins verse 13 with a calling it says he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him this is a solemn action the language there in the original Greek is something symbolic is happening and so Jesus goes up a mountain mountains in Mark's Gospels are places of significance something is going to happen when you hear about Jesus going up the mountain take note and these reflect other times in our Bible where things happen on mountains. They're places of revelation. They're places of significance. They're places where people meet God. And so something has happened. When you read Jesus is going up a mountain, think, uh uh-oh, something is going down here, something important. The first thing he says is he called. The language there is strong. It's like he summoned. He gave a direct command to people there. So he called, and it says, whom he desired. And so what it means in the calling of the 12, it's all about Jesus. He is the one who called them. He called the 12 to be with him. They didn't apply and got the job among a bunch of applicants. They weren't the ones saying, pick me, pick me. Jesus, in his divine sovereignty, said, you will be with me. And it was based on the heart of God in that. And they are um, being part of this new um, community. That Jesus is forming, and they are undeserving men. There's nothing about them that puts them forward and say, well, they've got a great resume, we'll have them. Nope. this is all on the sovereign call of God. And so what it means is this new community that Jesus is building is based on him, based on his call, and this is merely a continuation of what we've seen throughout the gospel. He's called the fisherman, he's called Levi, the tax collector. And it says, they came to him. And this is significant at the time because the Jewish rabbis... Um, At the time they didn't pick their student, student applied to them and said, Can I be can you be my teacher? Here, Jesus is the teacher with the one on authority, and he's saying, You come to me, and I will teach you, I will instruct you. And so Jesus is the focus of the call, it's all about him, and then he gives them a role within that. He says, He appointed. And the language there is um, he, he brings into existence. He creates something that wasn't there before, which cut, cut, fills in with Mark theme. If you've been following along with us, go back to Mark 1 verse 1 that we looked at right the very first week of the series about this is um, God's doing something new the language there was similar to the language of creation which we found in Genesis 1.1 something is beginning and it's following on here Jesus is creating a new community he is bringing something into existence so he appoints these 12 men um, to be part of it and then he names them it says he calls them apostles that talks about authority because in creation, what did Adam name? The animals. Adam named. He had authority over them. And so God says, you can name them. And it shows that. So Jesus is doing the same thing. He is naming his new creation there. And he's calling these guys apostles. And these means they're ones who are sent uh, with a particular person, a uh, particular purpose, sorry. And uh, actually, apostles only comes up twice in the Gospel of Mark. It's much more common to use the word disciple but those who be with Jesus and they are then sent uh, with uh, a particular purpose. And it says that they, they, these apostles, these disciples had two things that they need to do. First one, they need to be with Jesus. Why did he call them? So that they might be with him. And that's first in order, which means first in significance as well. The most important thing that these 12 men were to do were to be with Jesus. The second was that they were then to be sent out. So the first thing was about their being, and the second one was about them being sent out. They were is about who before what. Who they were with before what they did, which is the essence of discipleship. So they were called to be with Jesus, number one, have relationship with him, and then it was, they were sent out to do something, and they were sent out to preach, which is the same language used about Jesus. When he proclaims, he preaches, so they were basically doing what he was doing. He was preaching the message of the kingdom. They were then to do the same thing and they were also then to cast out demons, which is also the thing we've seen Jesus doing. It was the, um, the first miracle even performed, we saw that back in chapter 1. And so they were basically to continue Jesus' message of the proclamation of the kingdom and to see that kingdom come with lives being transformed. So Jesus called these people to himself, he appoints them and then sends them out to continue his mission. So you see a multiplication of all that Jesus has been doing. We see a relational aspect, where they are to be with Jesus. We see a verbal aspect, where they are to speak. And we see a behavioral aspect, things they are to do. Proclaim the message, cast out demons. And then it goes into their identity. Who are these? And there is a list, a list of 12. And the New Testament, we have a list in Matthew, we have a list in Mark, we have a list in... um, Luke and we have a list in Acts of the 12 apostles, and there are always 12. It is a discrete unit within it. What's significant about 12? If we go back into our Old Testament, when we come across 12, where do we come across 12? The 12 tribes of Israel, which were God's people. They were the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. So we get the ethnic descendants of Abraham. That was God's people and they grew and they multiplied and we have the whole story of them taking the land God had promised, etc, etc. Jesus has now pointed 12. He has pointed 12 new. And so what we've got here is we've got a redefinition of what it means to be part of God's people. Back in the Old Testament, it was the ethnic descendants of Abraham. They were God's people. Now, it's those who are with Jesus, who've been called by him, and they have relationship with him and then are sent out with him. So we have a new Israel being formed, which fits in again with what Mark's been doing about something new happening, new creation, new beginnings, what Jesus is bringing in. And so we have a new Israel being formed right here. And it begins with Simon, who is then named Peter. And we always talk about Peter now because he's more often named Peter. So he always heads the list, which means he is the kind of de facto leader because when they write a list, significance is given to first place. Peter always heads the list, and so he was the de facto leader of this 12. He's given this new name, Peter, which means rock, strong and steady. Unfortunately, Peter's not always like that when we read about him. So he's always got Peter, and then we've got James and John, the two brothers who come next? And they actually formed an inner three within the twelve. They're often with Jesus in significant events. We'll see that as we go through Mark. Often he says Peter, James, and John go with him for something in the context of the twelve. But they've been given a nickname as well. They're called Sons of Thunder, which um, commentators tell us it kind of it could mean a couple of things. It could mean loud ones or hot tempered. So it's one of those. So we get we, we get an impression of what James and John are like: loud and hot tempered and so these are two kind of brothers who are a bit wild a bit on the edge um, I always remember aren't they the ones who called down I said let's call down fire from heaven the village it said the village they didn't want to listen to Jesus and so James and John respond well let's just burn them to the ground <laughs> and Jesus is like whoa n- no don't the son of man came to do that so that's those guys so you've got Peter you've got James and John Um, Then we've got others in there, we've got Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Judas and Matthew. Now those guys we kind of know a little bit about, they turn up again at different points. Matthew is Levi, we've just met in chapter 2. But there's also Bartholomew, another Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, who we actually know nothing more about. They get named in the 12 and you're kind of like, church history might have something to say, but in God's word... That's not, there's not a lot more information we've got about them. And this list kind of points to something for us. And one of them is that uh, the existence of the church is indebted to people we know basically nothing about. Ordinary guys who we, history doesn't contain a lot more about them, but yet they were vital in God's plan. And so actually the church, the church worldwide even now is indebted to those who no one will know much about in terms of celebrity, and they won't have lots of Insta followers and all that, but yet they are faithful to God's calling to what God is doing. There's a bunch of ordinary guys there from a diverse range of backgrounds. There's no one there from the religious leadership authority of the time. They're all from outside that, and they're so diverse. You've got one end, you've got um, a collaborator, Matthew, Levi, who we've seen already, and then you've got Simon the Zealot, which is basically a, a terrorist well, that's how Rome would have seen him, a freedom fighter if you're on the other side. But you've got a collaborator and a terrorist in the same group, which I must admit, there must have been some fun dinner conversations there on political ideologies and how they deal with the ruling of Romans who were overseeing them. Also, we've got in there, just as a reminder again, Mark throws it in, that suffering is all part of what it means to follow Jesus, because who do we have at the end? Judas. And what does Judas do? Judas is the one who is going to betray him. So even at the beginning of what God is doing, the beginning of Jesus starting this new community, in there, there is suffering. There is the the pain that will come through Judas's betrayal, which we will see later as we go through the gospel. So there is Jesus starting something new. The next thing we're going to look at is who is in control, and I'll pull this together of how it all works, how, why Mark has ordered it the way he has in his gospel. And what we come to now is the first sandwich in Mark. Did you know Mark contains sandwiches? I didn't know this until I started studying it, but there, was a, there are sandwiches in Mark, and it's a literary technique to get a point across, and we've got the first one now. So if you've got your Bible, what we're going to look at in a sandwich, you have a piece of bread, you have filling, then what you have, another piece of bread. So, it's an ABA structure. What we've got in this final section is the ABA structure where the two bits on the outside are very similar while the filling is different, but actually they all link together with one message, one purpose. And so the first A is verses 20 and 21, then you've got the filling verses 20 to 30, and then the the second A is verses 31 to 34. The first two bit, the first, sorry, the two A's both take place in a house where Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Well, B is a confrontation between Jesus and the scribes from Jerusalem. And as we are reading the passage, that's the weird bit which we'll get to. And there is a link between the passage, and the link is a question of control. The question of control. Who is in control? Because everyone is trying to control Jesus. Everyone is trying to control Jesus. And the language points to that, and we will find out what Mark is trying to Teach us as we go through it. So, the first one, verses 20 to 21, seizing Jesus. So, he's in a house. It's likely to be Peter's house because we saw that back in chapter 1. His mother in law was ill there. It was in Capernaum, which was kind of the base where he was operating from. Um, it might well be the same house he healed the paralyzed man who came through the roof. I imagine the roof has got fixed, but that's what's going on. And Jesus' popularity has exploded. To the point there are crowds around. And we've seen in Mark that crowds don't necessarily mean good things. In fact, they pretty much always mean bad things. They get in the way. And here the crowds are there so that they could not eat. Imagine it being so full in your house that you couldn't eat. I like eating. I like food. And there is a lot that would stop me eating. You'd have to do a lot to come at me to stop me actually having my dinner. But Jesus' house, this house was so full, they couldn't eat. I don't know if that means they couldn't prepare the dinner or they couldn't serve it or what, but there was must have been wall to wall in there, which means it was probably a bit close, a lot of noise, a lot of energy, and so it's there. They were all packed into that house. Everyone's trying to get to Jesus, and it says his family heard about it, and the language there it's quite broad. It might mean his actual family, but it's also got a broader context of those who were close to him, followers, associates, could well have included the 12. He's just appointed those people there. Um, and they were just like, this is, this, this is intolerable. We can't have it. And it says, they went out to seize him. They wanted to grab him. They wanted to hold him. They wanted to Bind him. Why? He says because he's out of his mind. He's flipped his lid. He's off his rocker. That is strong language. Their verdict of Jesus is something's wrong with him to allow this to happen. And they're like, We're in charge. We're gonna take control. We're going to seize him and remove him from this situation. Do it. They were gonna try and stage an intervention. Because effectively they're saying Jesus is nuts. He's mad. Something's wrong here. We've got to do something about this. And what it teaches us is that proximity and closeness to Jesus does not necessarily mean faith and understanding of what he's trying to do. Just because they were close to him doesn't mean they got him. And their response of him is, let's grab him and do something about it. Okay, let's go on to the next section. This is the slightly longer one. This is the middle one. And this is about Jesus binding. So they've tried to bind Jesus by seizing him now we've got the longer one and so it changes completely a complete change of scene and it begins with an accusation it says scribes come down from jerusalem saying he's possessed by beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons so the scribes we've met them they're regular opponents of jesus they were experts in the law um, of moses And the written law and the oral tradition that came out of that, and they didn't like Jesus, and they didn't like what he's doing. Jesus had had confrontations with them before and come out on top. And it says here they come down to Jerusalem, so they brought the big boys in. The other scribes were more regional, and suddenly it's like, uh uh-oh, the top dogs come down from the temple, and they're coming to deal with this problem Uh, with Jesus and rather than asking questions which they've done in the past they now just come right out they are going for full-on confrontation and this is part of the group that decided they want to get rid of Jesus they want to destroy Jesus we've seen that they they are opposed to him and they come and they accuse Jesus of and they don't deny that he can perform miracles because it's self-evident he's done it paralyzed man Um, they've healed They've seen him healing They've seen him cast out demons what they go after is the origin of his power they're saying actually you can do these things we've seen that but the way you're doing the, the power behind you do them is demonic you are functioning in demonic power and that's what it talks about the prince of demons beelzebub the, what the meaning behind the is a bit contested they're not sure but it, it clearly points to a demonic power and so Jesus is saying, you're doing all these things, but you're doing them not from God, but from an evil source, a demonic source, um, and which Jesus then pushes right back at them and gives them an illustration which shows the uh, futility and the stupidity in what they're doing. He basically, Jesus says, he called them together, verse 23, so again, he's calling, Jesus is the one in control, he calls them, and he, he says, right, we're going to make uh, um, some announcements here, and he basically says, look, if if I'm... Using satanic power, demonic power, to cast out demons, that just doesn't make sense. If, if, if a house is divided, if a kingdom is divided, fighting amongst itself, it won't stand. There's no, there's no logic in me using demonic power to cast out demons. It just doesn't work like that. That's not how it would work. It would fall apart. And he's saying, actually, that's not what's going to happen. If you're going to come in and you're going to d- deal with demonic powers, he says, actually, you have to bind up the strong man which is a representative of the devil, of the power They says so you've got to bind him up. Then you can plunder the house. And what Jesus is saying, I'm not using demonic power to part, cast out demons. Actually, I am the power, and I've come to stop the demonic power. I've come to bind it up, and I've set, come to set people free. I've come to plunder that house. I'm here to destroy the works of the enemy. And we've seen that in his ministry. And you read on in your New Testament, that is sometimes the stated aim of what Jesus came to do. Find that in Acts. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the evil one. And Jesus is just saying that, saying this is, this is what I came to do. This is what I came to do. And, and your logic just doesn't stand up. There's no way I can be casting out demons by demons. I have to have the power of God to cast out demons. And I've come to plunder his house. I've come to set people free. That's what I've come to do. i I'm come as a liberator to set free the oppressed And Jesus' first miracle was casting out demons. We've seen that. And then we get the warning which causes people's problems. Verses uh, 28 to 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And this can cause Christians to get worried sometimes. Am I guilty of committing the eternal sin? Let's look at this. Jesus begins, Truly I say to you, which is something he uses more than a dozen times um, across the Gospels, and so there's something important he's going to say there. And He's basically saying forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is available to all. But he's basically saying there is one that isn't. And what's the point he's making here? Well, the verse 30 gives us a clue in what it is, points squarely to it. It says, because they were saying he had a unclean spirit. And what Jesus is saying is, if you attribute the works of God to the demonic, then you're in a place where you can't repent of your sin. Repentance is available to all. Sorry, forgiveness is available to all. You repent of your sin, you receive forgiveness. Jesus has then done that. He did that with the, um, the paralyzed man. There's not a moment in Scripture when people come to him for forgiveness where God says, no, I won't forgive you. So God responds with forgiveness to repentance, but there are those who attribute the works of God to the demonic who are outside of that because they are so far gone and they they, they are so twisted in their thinking that they can't see God at work. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's basically accusing the scribes of that. He says, you are so twisted in your desire to destroy me, we've seen that last week, in your hatred of me that you will attribute the good things of God to the things of the enemy. says you are so bound up in that. And when you're in that position, you're outside a place where you can receive forgiveness. And so you are guilty of an eternal sin. And Jesus means this as a warning, not as a condemnation. So the implication is actually if you repent, you can receive forgiveness. And so when people say, have I committed the eternal sin? The fact that you're answering it says... No, of course you haven't, because you're bothered enough to seek repentance and seek forgiveness. And Jesus is saying to these men, you are standing on a precipice, that if you accuse the things that I'm doing, the things of God, where I am saving people, healing people, delivering people, and you attribute that to Satan, you are so twisted that you are calling darkness light, and light darkness, you are in danger of damnation and being separated from God for eternity. And there is a warning there for them and for us that actually that we are to come to God for forgiveness. We are to cry out to him for mercy, and he will forgive it when we repent of our sins. Now, the final part of the sandwich jumps back now to the house. So we've done house, and Jesus about Jesus is a strong man in Bind, and now we've got people trying to call Jesus and it says, and his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, and they called to him. Who's been doing the calling up till now? Jesus. Jesus is the one who calls. He's the one with authority. He's the one who summons. Now it's his mum and his brothers. Jesus, come here. Who's ever been called by their parents? Jesus is being called by their parents, and he is, he's still in the crowded house. And interesting, what did it say twice in two verses? Who's on the outside? Jesus' mother and his brothers. They're the ones who would be closest to Jesus. They're blood relatives, but they're on the outside. They're outside the house. They're not inside the house with Jesus. When Jesus called the 12, what did he call them to? To be with him. The 12 are in there with him. Meanwhile, his own family, his blood relatives are on the outside and they are calling, they are summoning Jesus to themselves. They're saying, you come to us. There is a reversal of Jesus' call. They are assuming a position that is only for Jesus. He is the one who calls. He is the one in authority. He's the one who says, you come to me. You follow me. But actually, we've got the reverse here. And it says they're seeking him. Again, we saw that earlier when the disciples were seeking Jesus after the initial uh, healing at the synagogue. And the the language there is to to seek, to seize, and to control and capture. And Jesus says, no, I won't be that. I'm going to go on and I'm going to preach in other towns and other places the good news of the kingdom. And here now it's his family doing this. And so when the people say, oh, your family's outside, and he makes this comment, actually, no, they're here. He's not denying they're not his family. Like, no, that's not my mum. Interestingly, dad isn't mentioned probably because Joseph has died by now. So we know mum is Mary. Brothers, he definitely had one called James. But they're outside. And he's, saying, he's not saying, no, they're not my family. He's saying those who are my family in God's family are the ones who are with me and close to me. And he's saying, actually, that supersedes blood relatives. Relation and proximity to Jesus is the key, and it is not dependent on a family relationship. It's on fa- based on faith and coming to Him. And He's saying, actually, my family are those who come and spend time with me. Because He said, "This is my family here," doesn't He? He says, "Mother, brother." He adds sisters in, probably because Jesus didn't have any sisters; he had brothers. But he brings sisters in, so it's it's wide. It's everybody. They're my family because they are coming to me. And again, there's that reminder. Just because you think you have a proximity to Jesus because of something, it doesn't substitute for relationship. It doesn't substitute for relationship. And so what we've got in this sandwich is we've got Jesus establishing a new community. That begins it. This is what it looks like. And then Mark says, right, there's people who won't accept that. There's people on the outside trying to control Jesus, trying to say, no, this isn't how you should do this, Jesus. This isn't, there's too many people here. It's too much. There's too much going on. You shouldn't do it. Then you've got the scribes coming down and accusing him of actually, you've got demonic power. And you say saying, no, I'm the one in control. I'm the one who binds up the enemy. I'm the one who sets people free. And then you've got the final part of the sandwich where people are calling him again, trying to control Jesus. They're kind of controlling him. And that's not how he's new kingdom works he's the one in control he's the one in authority he's the one we are to look to and so as we kind of pull this together i want to ask you a couple of questions to maybe earth this probe this poke this in your life the first one is are you spending time with jesus and his people another way of putting is are you on the inside or are you on the outside when it comes to his word. Are you in His word or are you out of His word? When it comes to prayer, are you in prayer or are you out of prayer? When it comes to the gathering of God's people, are you in it or are you out of it? When it comes to corporate prayer, when we gather together, are you in it or are you out of it? When it comes to our life groups where we work out this community, are you in it or are you out of it? Because what you cannot do is rely on some other thing to get you in you can't rely on a proximity or relationship well I'm around Christians therefore I'm all right because we found that doesn't work we can't rely on relationship well my my parents they're believers they they spend time with Jesus I'll be fine my spouse she's really good she goes after God she prays for us as a family she does that that makes me fine my fr- I've got friends. They're they great Christians, and we hang out together. I, I'm close to them. I'm fine. I kind of it rubs off on me. No, Jesus' new community requires us to be with Him, and that is a personal thing that we are to do. A personal response. We cannot rely on others. We also can't try and seize Jesus and control Him and put Him into our life. He supersedes that. He's greater than that. I'll fit Jesus in when it opens up in my diary. When I'm not pursuing my hobby, or I'm not doing a DIY project, or I'm I'm feeling better, I'm a bit tired at the moment, then I'll fit him in. He doesn't work like that. He calls you to him, and you come. You come be with him. You come be with his people, because that's what he's created. That's the purpose of it. That's why we're here. We've been called to be with Jesus. We've been called to be part of his people, his community that he died to make. If you're not a believer here and you're sitting listening, I want to tell you straight out, you are outside the kingdom of God even though you're in the room here with us, rubbing shoulders, singing songs, listening. You have to respond to the good news of Jesus. You have to repent of your sin. You have to come and seek forgiveness you have to recognize him as lord and savior the one who died in your place for your sins and to come and be part of his new community i'm so off my notes now i'm not sure where i am are you spending time with jesus and his people it's a searching question because what Mark is trying to get across is saying, this is what it looks like, this is how not to handle it. These examples, this sandwich he put together, this is how you don't, you don't get to control Jesus. You don't get to claim things about him that aren't true. He is the one, it's all about him. So are you spending time with Jesus and his people? What do you need to do? What adjustments do you need to make? What attitudes do you need to make? Don't be like his mother and brothers who stood outside and summoned, tried to summon Jesus to them. There's just this sheer audacity of it when we think about it. The good news is for Jesus' mom and brothers is that they saw the light and eventually recognized who Jesus was, and his brother ended up leading the church in Jerusalem um, and stuff like that. So there is hope, but don't be those people. Second thing, are you telling others the good news? If we spend time with Jesus... If we spend time in his presence, if we spend time in his word, if we spend time in prayer, if we spend time with his people, our life is reorientated. Things are put back in order of the way they need to be. And it reminds us of the power of the message and the fact that we need to proclaim that to others. We need to live it out. Jesus called that those 12 to be with him so that they would then go out proclaim the good news cast out demons basically go against the works of the enemy in all its forms injustice evil So uh, those who are downtrodden those who are on the outside we go and proclaim the good news and we live it out we serve in word and action in all that we do and the question arises: are we helping outsiders become insiders are we helping people come into the kingdom? Are there people we need to talk to? Are there people we need to provoke? Even in our own family, some of you need to provoke people in your own family of where they stand in the kingdom. Some of you need to provoke your spouses. Some of you need to provoke your children, even your parents. Actually, where are you standing? Because the mission starts at home in what we're doing there before it spreads outside of our home. And we need to do that. And so are we communicating the good news, are we living it out in our workplaces, in our homes, amongst our friends, our social groups? Are we living in the good of all that God has done for us, the fact that we have been forgiven and we've been justified and we've been filled with the Spirit and we've been empowered to serve, knowing he will always be with us. We are to proclaim the good news and live it out wherever we find ourselves, wherever we are. Okay, it's time to stop. You want to stand? I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you now, as we finish and join you know the band, do you want to come up. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. There may have been things that have been said, sung. God's dropped into you, that's provoked you this morning, that you need to kind of do some business with, and I just want to kind of lead us in a time of reflection and prayer, and then we'll worship, and I'd love to start with what we've been called into. We've been called into that new community. It began with the 12 there, but actually that's just then extrapolated out for all believers of all times who love and serve the Lord Jesus We've all been called by him to be with him. And I want us to start with thanking God for that. That if you know you're part of that, that is a response of that is worship and praise. I read Psalm 150 this morning. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. And if you're a believer here, a Christian, then that you have to be front of the queue. I will praise the Lord with my breath. I will praise him He's worthy of my praise. I'll praise him because he saved me. He redeemed me. He brought me into this new community. He brought me close to him when I was far. All those things. And we can praise God. So maybe you just start sometime just praising him, thanking him for who he is, for what he's done in your life. For worshipping him and saying, God, you are amazing in what you did. You called me by name to be with you what an awesome privilege that is you called me to be with you but some of you know there are things in your life you need to get sorted out things that you know where you've tried to control Jesus you try to be the person you try to be like his closest, his friends and family He's trying to push him into the mold well Jesus you've got to look like this and be like this it fits in my life it fits with how we're doing and you need to just bring that to God and say God I'm going to stop that I'm going to repent of that I don't want to be like that some of you here may not be believers and you're in the danger like the scribes who just attribute the things of God to other things. Oh, it's just this, it's psychosomatic, it's just cultural, it's this. It's just, and you rubbish the things of God, even if you don't formally say it. If you, if you stand like that, you're on the outside looking and you need to repent of your sin and you need to come to him for forgiveness. And so that puts us all kind of in the same boat there. So if you know there are things you need to deal with, deal with them now. Come before God. Repent. So I'm going to change this. If you're relying on others' faith to somehow carry you, no, you need to get right with God yourself. Let me just pray, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your new community, your new Israel that you created based on faith in you and your works and what you've done, your death, your resurrection. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us to draw close to you. That is a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful gift, Lord. And we just praise you for that. And Lord God, we ask for your forgiveness where we have tried to squeeze you into a mold. We've tried to kind of fit you around the things that we think are important, rather putting you first place and putting you as number one priority. Lord God, we forgive us where we've tried to kind of rely on others around us to carry us through rather than responding ourselves. Forgive us where we've been out of the word rather than in the word, out of prayer rather than in prayer, out of your community rather than in your community. God, we pray, God, draw us back to you that we might know your presence, Lord. We want to say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said...